ever question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Good day to all of you out there. My apologies for not being here last week. Uh, I'm in the way of all flesh and was in sick bed with the flu. It's getting much better to now. I just want to continue with what I've begun, which is to show the relevancy of Scripture to uh, our problems today. And while much has changed about the world in the last 2,000 years. Um, human nature itself seems not to have changed one little bit. And um, that's why I think Scripture has a relevancy to the problems that we face. And this week I'm going to start with uh, the Exodus. Now, a name for the Hebrews represented the innermost self or identity of a person. So that when someone went through an experience that changed and reoriented his or her life, he took a new name. So Saul in the New Testament, after his experience on the road to Damascus, became Paul. Now, Moses' question at the burning bush, asking for God's name, was an attempt to know the mystery of the divine nature. Now, Yahweh, which in English we translate as I am, I am that I am, that does, it isn't adequately translated by the English verb to be. Because in the Hebrew, Yahweh denotes activity, not passive eternal being. So just as a person discloses himself through words and deeds, so God reveals himself by what he does. Now, um, this is the new name. In chapter 6 of Exodus, verses 2 to 3, we find this passage. And God, and the word there is Elohim, which is interestingly enough, plural. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, which is God of the mountain. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So this is a, a new aspect of the divine nature being revealed here. That um, revelation takes place in and through historical events. Well, that was a radical uh, diversion from ancient religion. Um, most of the Gilgamesh creation epics and, and all those sort of things were once upon a time kind of stories. They're not firmly located in place and time. Um, but for the Hebrews, um, what's about to happen, the Exodus, is an example of God operating to bring 
order out of chaos, which is the essence of creation. Um, the conflict in Egypt was not with their gods, but with an arrogant pharaoh who thought that he was running history. The narratives do not pretend to be an objective photographic report of what happened, which is what we look for, but a testimony to events as Israel experienced them, as they were interpreted within the community of faith. You have to keep that in mind with all these stories about the um, miracles in Egypt. Now, they had no concept of nature as a realm of laws, as we do, which is our inheritance from Isaac Newton. So there's no notion of miracle as something that disrupts natural law. In the Old Testament, regularities of nature are simply expressions of God's faithfulness, and his will is discernible in every event, common or uncommon. They made no distinction between natural and supernatural. It was all God's doing. Now, the word sign, which is often used, particularly in John's Gospel, is simply visible evidence of the presence and purpose of God. It's, it's not an empty symbol. Um, like a, a highway sign that says, Mobile 30 miles, pointing to something that's not present. That's a different kind of a sign. This is a sign in which God makes himself evident. Um, but God is not bound by an iron chain of cause and effect relations. Signs were not a proof to convince people of God's sovereignty. Their meaning was not self-evident to those who witnessed them. But ambiguous evidence that demanded faith and trust. There could be ordinary events such as the plague of locusts or the Nile turning red or an extraordinary event such as the death of the firstborn, allowing for elaboration and exaggeration over a period of time. The story was handed down orally for generations. The main point to keep in mind here is that there were some series of events that were seen by the Hebrews to embody a divine deliverance from slavery. For example, the Hebrew expression Yam Suf, S-U-P-H, was rendered as Red Sea in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Now the Septuagint version was produced in Alexandria, Egypt, about a hundred years before our Lord. The reason for it was that there were so many Jews in Egypt at the point who did not understand or speak Hebrew, but the Greek. So this was an attempt to put scriptures into Greek so the Hebrews down in Egypt could read scripture and understand it. And it's called the Septuagint because it was uh, compiled by a committee of 70 Jewish scholars. Um, so in this Septuagint version of the events, 
the deliverance from Egypt. It actually means read C, R-W-E-D, not Red Sea. The miracle was that it happened at a particular time with a particular meaning. It was not a freak of nature, but a sign of God's active presence using the wind for his purpose. Again, flocks of quail migrate over the Sinai in the spring to this day and are easily caught when exhausted. But this was not a question of luck for them. Um, they were hungry in the desert, and as far as they were concerned, it was God who sent these quail to give them something to eat. Now, a large check, a, a chunk of the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers both has Sinai as its locale. God is depicted as carrying his people, like an eagle lifting its young on its wings, toward this spot for a particular purpose, to become a community, not a crowd, bound to God and to one another by an intensely personal bond of a religious character, namely, to be a kingdom of priests whose calling is to serve their Lord. A particular people is singled out, not for privilege, but for task, a job. Not until now do they really become a people to whom the name Hebrew and Israel apply. Now, there was an ancient belief that blood had a particular efficacy in sacrifice. Um, which is why it seems to have occurred for there to be a sacrifice there had to be blood of some kind usually that of an animal to bring together the two parties in a covenant and we've mentioned this before there are two types of law found in what we now call the Pentateuch which um, Penta is Greek for five and Tuch is books the first five books of the Old Testament Pentagon is a figure that we shapes the Defense Department in Washington. Um, there are two types of law to be found in the, in the first five books of the Old Testament. There's conditional or case law. If such and such obtains, then something um, should be um, happening. The example in the ancient world is the code of Kamahamurabi. But there is a second type known as absolute law, which is unconditional and stated in sharp, terse language. This is more characteristic of the Israelites expressing the, the demands of the covenant. Now, there are two types of covenant in the ancient world. One has exhibits parity, is reciprocal. Both parties bind themselves to each other by bilateral obligations. That's what we would call a contract. But there was another type of covenant which was more unilateral between the king and his vassal. It in no way infringes upon the sovereignty of the king and as the inferior party, the vassal is under obligation to obey commands of the covenant's author, 
the king. The motive for this obligation is gratitude for what has been done for him by the king. Great attention is given to the king's needs of benevolence on behalf of the vassal. This is from extant copies of other covenants. Now, the Sinai type is obviously of the second variety, type B. It is given by God, conferred upon the people by the sovereign, who is God, not a human being. Israel was beholden to Yahweh. It is he who takes the initiative, not because they're not worthy. The relationship of people to God is not that of slave to master, as we saw in the Gilgamesh epic, but that of a firstborn son who has been graciously redeemed. The Israelite community is based on this covenant, not blood ties. It's a religious uh, grouping, not an ethnic one. There's some conjecture on the part of biblical scholars whether or not um, Moses was really a monotheist or not. But that's not all that important. What is important is that people were not allowed to straddle the fence, to serve both Yahweh and some other deity of their preference. Yahweh's jealousy meant that he makes a complete, absolute claim on Israel's devotion. Now, in their journeys through the wilderness, which took some 40 years, the greater part of their time is spent at Kadesh Barnea, a desert oasis. To wanderers used to life in the barren wilderness, Canaan must have seemed to be like a veritable paradise flowing with milk and honey, despite the abundance of rocks on every hand. The rabble under Moses did not become a stable, unified community overnight. It took years of consolidation, which was one of the functions of the Exodus, not going straight into the Promised Land, but staying out there for 40 years, as they became a unit, unit tied to each other and to Yahweh. Now, there are two features of camp life. The, the, the tent of meeting was a portable shrine regarded as the place of rendezvous with Yahweh and as the center of religious and political gatherings. Then there was the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden chest kept inside the tent of meeting. It was a portable throne on which God was believed to be invisibly enthroned. The significance of all this we have a picture of a transcendent God who without any limitation on his sovereignty dwells in the midst of his people. He tabernacles among men is the phrase used in scripture. Now the hardships of the desert and the lack of living space finally compelled them to look elsewhere for a home. A group of spies was sent north you can find this in Book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. Who returned with bad news. An attempt at forcible entry into the southern Canaan made anyway with disastrous results. There's only one other route. 
to go east of the Jordan to what we now call the Transjordan. But there, there were petty kingdoms of Edom, Moab, Sion, and Og, who blocked their path that way. Suspicious, the Edomite kings refused permission for them to transit their country on the king's highway. So they had to skirt it, and Moab as well. Approaching Zion, spelled S-I-H-O-N, they again asked permission. The response was an army sent against them, resulting in the first military victory for the new people. By that victory, they moved north against the king of Bashan, who was a fellow by the name of Og, O-G. Defeating him as well, they now possessed a large strip of the Transjordan, east of the Jordan. Now, at this point occurs a curious incident of the oracles of Balaam, which reflect a new confidence that nothing can stop them from achieving their destiny now. We have a break coming up, so I'll be back with you shortly. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. 
To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello, we're back again. We were discussing uh, the Oracles of Balaam last time. Uh, it's spelled B-A-L-A-A-M. Now, it's reflected, these oracles reflect a new confidence that nothing can stop them from achieving their destiny. The talking donkey is not the main feature of the story, but the fact that a non-Hebrew prophet of God, even this foreign diviner, had to obey the dictates of Israel's God. And that episode is can be found in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 24. But now comes the invasion of Canaan, the promised land, promised to Abraham all those centuries ago. There are two accounts. One is the book of Joshua, which biblical scholars consider to be a product of the Deuteronomic writer, the one who wrote the book of Deuteronomy, and Judges. Deuteronomy's formula for success and failure is theological. Obey God's commands, and you will achieve victory and prosperity. Disobey means divine judgment and suffering. And it's interesting that the book of Job was written as a conscious protest against this simplistic uh, idea that if you obey God, everything will go well. If you disobey, everything's going to go bad. Um, real life simply does not conform to that. And the book of Job was written that was a protest against that idea. This version is neat and orderly, depicting three military campaigns in the center, south, and north of Canaan, resulting in complete possession. Now, if you want to get a picture of that, you can find it in the book of Joshua, chapter 11, verses 16 to 23. But if we look at... Um, The first chapter of Judges, the first verse, look at that first question asked after Joshua's death. Judges, in contrast to um, Joshua, the book of Joshua, gives a picture of gradual infiltration with initial guerrilla warfare superseded by settlement amid the locals and intermarriage with them. Now, both accounts are needed to do justice to the complexity of the situation. Israelites were successful only in the hill country, where their fairly simple methods of warfare could take advantage of the broken terrain. Chariots could not be brought to bear. Um... Meneptah, who was the son of Ramesses II, Emperor Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, erected a stele, which is a, a triangular stone, like, like a tiny pyramid, um, 
in relating uh, what happened at that event. And he mentions the defeat of the people, the people Israel, not an individual, but a whole people named Israel. In other words, that by, by that point, by 1220 BC, they were coherent enough to be seen as a, as a unity. Now, the background of all this activity, there was a power vacuum on the international scene and population movement of tribes from Southern Europe. These peoples of the sea, as an Egyptian term for them, included the name Philistines, from which we get the name Palestine. Now, the weapons of iron against which the Israelites, still in the Bronze Age, were at a disadvantage. Um, one of the important events recorded in Joshua 24, a great convocation at Shechem, which is sort of in the center of what we now call Palestine, located near Joseph's grave and Jacob's well. Shechem was never attacked indicating that the locals were friendly to Israelites, either through kinship or alliance. Possibly some biblical scholars speculate they could have been earlier relatives who never went down to Egypt. What happens here is that there is a renewal of the covenant, uh, which initially established by Moses on Sinai. It's a renewal of that covenant in which even Canaanites are absorbed into Israel. In other words, this is a religious, not a national or an ethnic term. This has important consequences for syncretism in which uh, we try to take advantage of several different religious um, practices and beliefs and integrate them with our own. This was going to be a big problem for those who considered themselves followers of Yahweh. The 12 tribes were bound together loosely on the basis of a common religious obligation. Shechem became a central sanctuary which the tribes cared for in turn. At this center, regular festivals were held laws binding on all the tribes were administered. In times of military emergency, the tribes would unite in face of a common foe. This brought about a degree of unity in language, customs, and political interests. In other words, what we're looking at here is a confederacy of the um, independent tribes who came together for common, a common problem like a, a military foe. Um, <clears throat> In Exodus chapter 20 through 23, we are given the covenant code. Now, although there is evidence here of borrowing from other Near Eastern codes, such as the Code of Hammurabi, there are important differences. Israel law is characterized by a humane spirit, high ethical emphasis, and a pervading religious fervor which makes it unique. 
Here, law is set within a covenant relation and is not dependent upon a monarch. In the ancient world, the king or the emperor was the law. He wasn't above it. What he said was law. And that's why he could um, command the death of people. And it was carried out because there was nothing higher than the king. But here, they are dependent upon Yahweh, not a human monarch. Now, so the struggle about taking over the promised land was ideological as well as military. It was a conflict of religious loyalties. The Tower of Babel story expresses an early nomadic protest against the proud culture of the Fertile Crescent, civilization. The first city was built by Cain, according to Genesis, who is not one of the favorite characters in the Old Testament. However, this negative attitude towards Canaanite culture was offset by wholesale adoption of Canaanite ways. And this is where the conflict comes in. The word Baal, spelled B-A-A-L, literally translates as Lord or Owner. In other words, it is a deity who owns the land and controls its fertility. Baalism was a fertility religion. How to make the crops grow and the cattle flourish so that the people can eat. And Baal was thought to be in charge of um, things like the weather so that um, the people could eat. Baalath, um, B-A-L-L, B-A-A-L-A-T-H, translates as lady. She was a female partner of Baal, often given the personal name of Ashtart. Now, Baalism was also a religion of sympathetic magic. You do this, and something happens over there. Um, Voodoo is like that. You can stick in an image and make somebody who may be miles away hurt. It was sympathetic magic and fertility religion. The myth of Baal's death and resurrection coincided with it. And like many of the ancient religions, sex had been elevated to the realm of the divine. They had sacred prostitutes in the in their temples, with whom, during a religion, um, the priests and the sacred prostitutes would would copulate, and this was the, it, it supposed to be imitated by Baal and Ashtar. When they got together, then um, the weather was favorable, the rains were favorable, and everybody was happy. Um, so many Israelites looked to Yahweh in times of military crisis 
involved with success in agriculture. This compartmentalization was not seen by them as a denial of their inherited faith. Each was Lord in his own sphere, not contradictory or mutually exclusive. <coughs> Sound familiar? It's, it's how to have your cake and eat it too. Just in case these other guys are right about Baal and Ashtart, um, we'll do some of their, accept some of their beliefs. Um, but Israel's belief was in a jealous God who would tolerate no rivals, which made the conflict inevitable. Also, paganism was motivated by a desire to manipulate the gods in the interest of human well-being, as defined by man himself, of course. The whole purpose of religious ceremony was uh, to placate the divinities so that they get them off your back and they don't zap you and you go your happy way. Ancient religion was a manipulation, attempt to manipulate the divine. Um, Israel's faith stressed serving God in gratitude for his benevolence and in response to the task he lays upon his people. Again, Baalism strove to maintain the harmony and rhythm of the natural order, thus providing a rationale for the aristocracy who wanted to keep things their way. There was no such thing as the middle class. Um, you had the, the leading element of society, and then you had uh, the peasants. And most ancient religion was geared towards maintaining that status quo. Um, Again, we have another break coming up. So I'll see you in a few minutes to pick up where we left off. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. 
Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello again. I'm just going to summarize what I was trying to talk about before the break. Conflict between the um, religion of the Canaanites, which was um, fertility and um, sympathetic magic with the faith of the Israelites that they brought with them when they moved into Canaan. Um, Something that characterized the Hebrew faith was the ethical dimension. God puts, puts demands on us to behave in certain ways, ways which are to make life for everyone better. Whereas Baalism was trying to maintain the status quo, was very suspicious of disruptive social change, and um, you can see how the conflict between the two, um, there's a certain incompatibility there. Now, Given the fact that the Israelites are now in the promised land, albeit in the hill country mostly for the most part, um, we come to this idea of the judges. Now, primarily the judge in the Hebrew, Shofet, was a military champion or deliverer. Although he or she did play a part in internal arbitration after the reputation was established became something of a judge in other words the office was non-hereditary it rested on a special endowment of Yahweh's spirit the judge was always a charismatic leader who could rally the tribes together to meet the fake common foe Um, and but once he was off the scene no one inherited that mantle. So, 
we have a period of about 200 years here in which there's a confederacy of the 12 tribes and they um, ideally come together under the leadership of of a charismatic military leader uh, when the need is there and then they go back to being living their separate ways uh, when there's no external threat. Um, I think you will see where that has its problems. The American colonies experienced it after their conflict with Britain. Originally, it was a confederacy of 13 colonies. But it very quickly realized what it took the Hebrews about 200 years to realize um, that this simply wouldn't do. It wasn't practical. Uh, It was too slapstick and um, could come together only when there was a common threat. Now, In 1125 B.C. was the Battle of Megiddo. There are two versions given. There's a prose version given in Judges chapter 4. And the poetic version, so-called Song of Deborah, in Judges chapter 5. Now the storm that defeated the Canaanites was seen as a scene of seen as a sign of God's active presence as leader and champion of his people. Now, you might want to notice that um, Armageddon, the word that we use so much nowadays, uh, comes from the expression Har Megiddon, the Battle of Megiddo, the Hill of Megiddo. This marked the end of the United Canaanite resistance against Israel. But there were others. Moab, led by King Ehud. The Ammonites, led by Jephthah. And the Midianites, who came in from the Arabian desert on camels. And they were faced by Gideon. Now, Samson is the most legendary of the stories preserved about the judges. The real theological point is that what happens to one who is filled with charisma when he disregards the guidance of Yahweh in a time of crisis to pursue his own passions? Um, of the historical value of this story is that there were no pitch battles just border incidents between the Israelites and the Philistines at that time. But this soon was to change. Gideon, one of the last of the judges, had rejected the effort to make him a king. But after his death, his son Abimelech persuaded the Shechemites, who had Shechem, that he was entitled to rule over them as king. And with money from the temple of Baal Berith, the Lord of the Covenant, he hired thugs to liquidate his 70 brothers. However, they failed to catch the youngest, Jotham, who expresses the attitude towards monarchy 
prevalent among conservative circles in the famous fable of the trees, which can be found in Judges chapter 9, verses 7 to 15. The implication of this fable is that Abimelech's government would be fuel for the fires of revolution, since it contradicted the theocratic ideal of Israel, that they were run and guided by Yahweh, not by a human being. Um, and this is indeed what happened. But the government was a sign of things to come. There was a stronger form of government was needed in the face of a determined Philistine effort to eliminate the Confederacy. Indeed, the sanctuary at Shiloh was destroyed by Philistines after the Battle of Ebenezer, when the Ark was taken captive. At the same time, excavations have shown that a number of other Israelite towns in the highlands were destroyed also. Um, that description can be found in 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 12. Fortunately for the Israelites, the Philistines did not follow up on their military advantage at this time. Specifically, they had iron swords, and the Israelites still were using bronze swords. And you can imagine what an iron sword would do to a bronze sword. So it gave them a technological advantage, but they didn't follow up on it. The important development here is that the re resilience of Hebrew faith showed itself. Yahweh's control of history was not bound up with any form of political organization, not even the Confederacy. So the defeat was not Yahweh's, who would, could discipline his people with disaster, as well as bless them with victory. The crisis became an occasion for repentance and renewal of the covenant. Such a renewal was epitomized by the advent of Samuel. Now, as so often occurs because of the divided opinion of the Israelites between maintaining the Confederacy and switching over to a monarchy, uh, there are two accounts of how the monarchy came to be. And one could be attributed to, uh, to, to Samuel, the other one to Saul. Um, the transition, Samuel was both the old and the new order of things. Uh, he represents the, uh, the judges. Uh, he's, he's a religious figure uh, who commanded respect. And he gives an example of the transition from the old type of charismatic leadership to a prophetic leadership. From the inadequate tribal confederacy to a more stable monarchy. Samuel's leadership is portrayed to two, two types of tradition. The Saul source, which is pro-monarch. Um, in 1 Samuel, 
We have the story of Saul going in search of his father's lost asses and finding a kingdom. <clears throat> Samuel is depicted as a seer and priest at a high place, a shrine. He secretly takes the initiative and announce, anoints Saul as prince over the people. But Saul was publicly acclaimed king not until after his victory over the Ammonites. Now, the other source, Samuel's source, is favor to the theocratic uh, scheme of things. Here, Samuel is called a judge, not a seer. And the idea of monarchy is displeasing to both Samuel and Yahweh. A warning is issued. With centralizing power of a monarchy comes limitation on freedom and the possibility of tyranny. And right there you have the seeds of our own states' rights debate. How much power does the federal government have? What are the limits set upon it? And where does the state have a more proper role to play in the federal government. The conflict is now going to be on two fronts. The religious front, Yahweh versus Baal, and the political, the people versus a nation. Israel could not easily live with nationalism because of her identity that transcended any political order. Even once they had a king in David, he was considered to be, unlike the ancient world, not above the law, but subject to Yahweh. Now, when we look at Saul, um, You can go to 1 Samuel 13, verses 19 to 22, to give a picture of their technological backwardness versus the Philistines. Saul's tragedy resolves around his attention from two people, Samuel, representing the old order, and David, the new order. Saul himself belonged more to the old than to the new. Preserved accounts are more favorable to David. Saul was the leader in the old style. The spirit of Yahweh had descended upon him so that he could deliver the people in the Ammonite crisis. Further, he made no attempt to transform the tribal structure of Israel into a centralized state. He claimed authority only because of the charisma. For all his weaknesses, he was a man of sincere, passionate faith in Yahweh. And his victories over the enemies was impressive. He was no prophet, although he came under prophetic influence on occasion. Um, today we would call them holy rollers. Um, not just Hebrew prophets, but also prophets of Baal, who would go into some kind of ecstatic state. And... Um, make their prophecies that, that way. 
uh, representing the particular divinity. Um, Now, the turning point came with the Amalekites. This was not an ordinary secular action, but a holy war, in which spoil was to be cherem, devoted to Yahweh as holocaust or sacrifice. In other words, sacrificial ban. Saul was given the divine command through Samuel to destroy everything. His sparing the life of Agag, their king, seems humane to us, and keeping the best of the livestock a practical step. But to Samuel and others, these constitute disloyalty to Yahweh. Saul's sin was using his own judgment in deciding how far to go in obeying the divine command. And the first, first book of Samuel Chapter 15, verse 22, brings this out. Because of his devotion to Yahweh, the prophetic word of, of rejection preyed on his mind to the point of insanity. He saw himself as alone and rejected by God. This was compounded by the apparent evidence that God's spirit had been handed on to David, whose successes outshine his own. Frustrated every turn by his efforts to track down David, Saul was at last cornered by the Philistines on the plain of Jezreel at the foot of Mount Gilboa. In desperation, he seeks out the witch of Endor, only to encounter Samuel's ghost and the prophecy of doom. A moving story of the tragedy of Saul's last hours. Why the ban against mediums? Simply because... Uh, Yahweh was in charge and not these so-called so professed mediums who could um, direct events. Um, to put your trust in a medium was to there we go again and uh, I guess we'll have to break off there and finish up next week. Look forward to seeing you at that time. Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.